someone is just like, hey, I'm doing this by myself and I'm really trying to quiet my anxious voice. I'm trying to turn up my confidence. People eye roll at this all the time, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mantras and affirmations, right? So we now know a lot about the human brain. And the more someone practices a thought, right? The more that thought becomes automatic. And the example that I use is imagine you're driving from your house to work. You don't actually put a lot of thought into it. You are hopefully not on your phone, but you're listening to music or you're just like dazing out and then you just get there. And that's because your brain has practiced it so many times. It doesn't need to bring a lot of forethought to it, right? It doesn't need to put it into like the front of our brain. That's really helpful when it's like, don't touch the stove or how do I get to work? It's very unhelpful when it's like, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I am unlovable, right? All of the negative self-talk that we have becomes automatic. So when we're trying to shift that, from being an anxious, nervous, self-deprecating thought to something that's more positive, right? Quieting the insecurities and making our confidence louder. It's, it's actively practicing new thoughts. And what we know now is that like there's neural pathways in our brain. And this is like brain stuff. Right? When we practice the thought, I'm not good enough, it actually becomes a super highway from like in our brain, right? There's an actually a neural pathway that's thick. And if We've never said to ourselves, like, I'm lovable. That one's like a whisper in our brain. So just the act of repetition and practicing new thoughts actually starts to manifest them in a way. And that's, again, from like a psychological point, we hear this. From a neurological point, we hear this. From like a spiritual point, we hear about manifestation. And we're all kind of saying the same thing, right? Believe in yourself and it will shift. Our thoughts do shift our behaviors. Welcome back to another enlightening episode of Unleash Thyself. I am your host, Constantine Moroon, and today we're taking an extraordinary journey through the maze of the human mind with a therapist whose career defies convention, Alison Gubalt. Alison has spent years forging her unique path in the world of mental health, wearing multiple hats as a crisis counselor a mental health aid in solitary confinement, a researcher, a sex therapist, and even a world traveler. With degrees in forensic psychology and forensic mental health, Alison's career has led her to work in some of the most challenging settings like Rikers Island Correctional and ERs in New York City hospitals. Now, she's a full-time therapist and the proud owner of Mindful Mental Health, where she provides much-needed care to communities often marginalized or overlooked by traditional therapy. Today, we're diving into some truly impactful topics, from the power of mantras and affirmations, to setting healthy boundaries, and the radical transformations one can achieve through relentless self-love and empowerment. We'll also explore how Alison found her way through a labyrinth of career options, only to realize that following her heart led her to the most fulfilling work. Before we unravel these profound topics, I'd love for you to support our mission by hitting the like button, subscribing to Unleash Thyself, and if you feel moved, leave us a review or a comment. Your support means the world to us and helps us bring you more impactful conversations like this one. So, Sit back, relax, and get ready to have your mind expanded. Let's get started. Welcome back to Unleash Thyself, the podcast that inspires and empowers you to unleash your full potential. I am thrilled to welcome Alison Gilbert to the show. Alison, we can't wait to hear more about the experiences and insights that have led you to where you are today. 
and your unleashed moment, the moment you knew you were on your own path to becoming the best version of yourself. Alison, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it as well. Yeah. So, Alison, I know your journey has been amazing so far. I've had a chance to read more about it and I'm excited to learn more about how you've gotten to this point today and how some of the challenges you face, how you overcome them and how you help so many beautiful souls with their own struggles in life. Well, thank you for having me. I always think these conversations are super important. Yeah, I've had quite a ride on this journey. So currently, present day, I am a therapist in New Jersey and I specialize in anxiety and trauma and sex and intimacy. And it's taken a lot of different, you know, sort of veers in the path to get to where Mm -hmm. I am today. So, you know, I always like when I have the opportunity to talk about this kind of stuff to tell anybody who might be listening, if you're not sure where your path is leading, it's amazing how unpredictable our lives can be and just how adaptable we all are. Because I don't think that I ever thought someone had asked me like 10, 15 years ago, like that I'd be in this seat talking to you today. That would have been something that was kind of like mind blowing. I don't, I couldn't have saw this path. So, you know, life is pretty unexpected and and really beautiful as we heal and evolve and and get all to try on all different types of opportunity. A little bit about me. So where did I start? I grew up in Jersey and dirty Jersey. I can say that because I grew up there and I was really very interested in actually criminology. So even when I was a small kid, my mom would say like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was You know, not like, oh, I want to be a vet. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. I was like, I want to be in the FBI and find serial killers. And, you know, she was very like, okay, my my child is very intense. But that's where I started. When I went to college, I went to school in New York City, NYU. I was really interested in forensics. And at the time, like now when I say to you, like, oh, yeah, I was interested in forensics, you probably have some idea of what I'm talking about. But in like 1999, that wasn't actually a very popular topic, right? Like now there's been like a birth of podcast, SVU, we have crime scene shows. So people have like an understanding for that. Back then they really didn't. So there was very limited access to getting a career in um, forensics. And I specifically wanted to do forensic psychology and I had kind of an idea of what we kind of think of as like a profiler. So I went to school in undergrad. They didn't have a program for that yet. They do now. And I went to school for actually psychology and human sexuality. Back then it was called women's studies. Now they've changed the program to human sexuality and gender. And I was really interested in working with people who had survived trauma, particularly women that had survived trauma. And I finished my NYU run and I went, I was able actually in my master's degree to actually start to pair up that interest in psych and forensic psych. And I got into a school that pretty much just does that. It's called John Jay School of Criminal Justice. And they, you know, there's really amazing opportunities where you get to work with just all sorts of experts in that field. So in my master's degree, I not only studied forensic psych, but I was able to work with the FBI, which was a pretty amazing experience. So my job there with them was I wrote a paper and was able to present it with the Federal Bureau of Investigations behavioral science unit on sex crimes. So I, you know, kind of early on got really involved in, in just like learning about the human brain and why people do what they do, especially in the lens of crime. So it was like a big mouthful. And after that, I somehow kind of, you know, again, we're not quite sure where our lives lead us. I was like very, very excited about doing that type of work, except I got an opportunity to work for a private investigator. And, you know, I'm, I'm a human being. I'm, I was young at the time. 
the salary and the opportunity seemed really great. So I actually veered away from my passion and took a more, a job that kind of met more of like, you know, our more lot like logistical needs. Right? It was a better salary. I didn't have to move. So I did that for a really long time. I was actually a private investigator working in white collar crime and I hated it so very much. And I was always volunteering, right? So during this whole like 10 year private investigator stint, I was always like volunteering in a hospital or a clinic, Planned Parenthood, things like that, that were kind of always like re-involving me in, you know, the work that I really like to do, which was mental health. And at some point I was working at a hospital in a volunteer position, working as like if someone had come to the New York City emergency room at this particular hospital and they were the survivor of a sexual assault or a domestic violence incident, they would meet up with me right? I would get called in, I would go in there and I would just kind of be the person that does whatever they need, whether it's like holding their hands, calling a friend, advocating that they get services. And I just, one day, I remember very profoundly, I was sitting in this board meeting with my boss and a bunch of lawyers. We were talking about our corporate crimes. And I just had this little light bulb go off that was like, I can never do this job ever again. Like in this moment, randomly, nothing profound is happening, but I just had this like, earth shattering light bulb that was just like, I hate my life. I hate my job. My job is soul sucking me, right? Like my relationships are suffering. Like I'm always burnt out. I don't have time off. I have not achieved work-life balance in any powerful way. And that day I went home, I called my own therapist. I was like, I think I'm having a midlife crisis. It was like 28. And I was like, I, I need to just change my entire life starting right now because I'm very unhappy and I'm very stressed out. My anxiety is very high. And the next day I put in my notice, it didn't go very well with <laughs> my job. It ended up being quite like turbulent for the next year of my life, trying to remove myself from that position. But I got to embark on an entirely different path, which has led me to this moment, you know? Yeah. So that's the beginning of that. I love that, Alison. And thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. And I smile because it sounds like you knew what you wanted deep in your heart. But of course, reality won over us a bit right? Like the, the necessities of day-to-day -day life. And you jumped into that life. You learned a lot of things, but then you realized you came to the aha moment. It's like, you know what? No, I got to follow my heart. I got to go do all these beautiful things I want to do. And I, because when I see people that come with the realization and I'm one of them, that means we're that much closer to having a much better world for everyone. Yes. Because if we have a world where everyone follows their heart and does what they really want and makes them happy, then everyone else will be happier. So you left the corporate world. I should, I would, I wouldn't want to say the corporate world, but you left yeah. that job behind yeah. and now you're doing what you wanted to do. Yeah. What were some of the biggest realizations you had when you embarked on this? Because I would imagine it wouldn't be easy, right? Because you left behind something more secure, more safe. Yeah. You know, so when I left my job, you know, I had all of the things that come with sort of like that corporate lifestyle. I had a nice salary. I had health insurance, right? And I quit really abruptly and then was left with like, okay, well now what? And unfortunately, my resume that would ha did have volunteerships on it. it, primarily my resume would gain me access to jobs that were similar to the one I was trying to leave. So it really wasn't that helpful. And I remember sitting down with a friend of mine and just being like, okay, like, let me follow my interests. So we know I like mental health, hooray. But like right now, today I need to pay my, I was in New York City, right? I'm in my twenties. New York City is a very expensive place. I still have rent. I had no savings, right? I just kind of like set my life on fire and like, cross my fingers, the universe would 
figure it out. And so I was just like, you know what, right now, the two things that I need to simultaneously happen is one, figuring out how to open up the door to making my passion become my career. But for the interim, I need to figure out how to pay my rent and to get food, right? So I had been a New York City bartender for a really long time. It was something I kind of off, always often like had my toe dipped in it. And I was like, okay, well, I can probably do that, right? So I called every bar I knew, I called every friend I knew, and I was able to very quickly get a bartending position, you know, at a happy hour bar, right? And, you know, again, when you like pause at that moment in my life, now I can look back and smile and be like, that was a great decision. But in that moment, it was quite terrifying, right? I had just advanced degrees. I put myself through school. I have tons of student loan debt. I, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm back to waitressing, right? Like that's all this evolution and like, you know, shout out to the waitresses and servers and bartenders out there. It's a tough gig, especially in New York city, but that's not where I was expecting myself to be at that juncture, but it paid the bills. Right. So, and unfortunately for me though, I had, I went to go get my license, right. I need a mental health license to do this officially. And very unfortunately for me, they had changed the, the licensing laws and the degree that I, which I had already used no longer qualified me for a license. So I, I was in men, forensic psychology and now they only allowed it to be a degree in forensic mental health. Right. To me, it was very like tomato, tomato, like mental health and psychology are very, but the state did not see it that way. So I now then was up against a new juncture of having to go back to school. And the way that it works in the state of New York is they need you to do a practicum. So I had already done a thesis, which is how I got to work with the research and the FBI, but I had not done like an internship. So by the time this all kind of flushed out, I was now in my like early thirties, right? Like we've taken a while to get here and I'm now like learning not only my bartending at happy hour, I have to pay for more school, but then I also have to go work for free. Right. And that's just like the trifecta of like, this is a kind of a bummer. Right. And you know why I always share like this part of the story. And when I'm talking about my personal life and or to clients, I highlight this part because again, you know, now I can say this with confidence in the aftermath of knowing it was a good idea. But at that point it was just, you know, overwhelmingly stressful. Right. It felt really hopeless. It felt really like, how can I continue to do this? I'm already in my thirties. You know, I think a lot of us have these like markers and what we think we're supposed to be doing in our life. Like, oh, I should be married by the time I'm this. I should be my career by the time I'm this. I should be a homeowner by the time I'm this. And here I am. I'm like working for free. I'm bartending. I'm like renting. I can't believe I have to do school again. Pity party. What was me? Like, this is the worst. Right. And, you know, I'm glad that I let those thoughts be quiet and the thoughts of like, but girl, you can do this. Like, this is what it is, right? There's no way to, this is, we're in the long path. We're in the long path ahead of us. I really dug into that energy and ultimately it paid, paid off. What was interesting about having to go back to school is, so I sat with like the heads of my program and you know, they had all these little internships that I was to take. And for me, I felt like I was already really invested in a long-term career. I'm not 22. I really wanted to like go for broke and get like my dream externship. And I thought the only place I hadn't worked was with offenders, right? I had done this like pretty long, extensive career with working with survivors of trauma, survivors of crimes, but I hadn't worked with offenders, right? And I wanted to really understand like, who are the people that commit the crimes? Like, what's their story? And I went to the the head of my program and I was like, I would like to work at Rikers Island Jail. And for people that don't know, Rikers Island is like a very infamous jail in New York City. It's it's like notorious for being, you know, a very chaotic place, right? It's it's a very intense place to be. And, you know, the program to Rikers Island had closed a few years earlier. So my school no longer offered us um, access to it. 
And I can be very stubborn and opinionated when I want to be. And I had an entire career of investigations behind me. So I actually found the woman who used to run the program through my investigation skills and like managed to wiggle my way into an email to her. And I was like, I know you've closed the program, but I'm going to pitch why I think this is a good idea. And I can't even believe it worked. Right. And this is where I give my little bit of a speech of, you know, our thoughts become things. Right. So if I had just accepted like, nope, this door is shut, that would be the end of that story. But instead I got really flexible and creative and I really leaned into like, how can I, how can I make something? How can I open a door for myself? And I don't believe manifesting something or wanting something is enough to get it, right? That story could have gone. I sent the email and she said, thanks, but no thing. But I did position myself where I'm opening up more opportunity for conversation and made an advocacy for myself and just confidence, right? So in the end, she did give me the job and she actually leveled up for me. So not only did I get the job, but I got the job um, at Rikers Island inside of solitary confinement. So I was the mental health clinician among others. There were clearly other people that worked with me in this one particular unit providing mental health treatment. Hey, it's Konstantin here. And I want to take a brief moment to truly thank you for being a part of this incredible journey of transformation. You are the reason we are creating this content. I see you and I appreciate you. Your support truly means the world to me. I want to ask you for a small favor. I'd love for you to join our mission by hitting like, subscribe, or leaving a thoughtful comment or review. Your engagement helps others discover these insights, and together we can continue to unlock the power of authenticity and personal transformation. And if you want to reach out directly to me, send me an email at constantine at unleashedyself.com. I value any and all feedback. Thank you for being a part of this movement. Now, back to the episode. That's a powerful and inspiring story. And I love how you said that you didn't allow those voices when you were at your lowest to overcome you and to overcome your limiting beliefs and keep you where you were. What would you say to people that are maybe struggling with keeping those voices down when they are in, in a situation like that? What have you seen work for others or even yourself? to quiet those voices and push through, even though you may not yet see the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love talking about this stuff. So, you know, I, I kind of have my first answer. If you can find a therapist, that's always a great idea, right? And why I like a therapist is, so, you know, therapy is, to me, has way less to do with, like, I, I'm not an expert of anyone's life, right? I have all this training and how to talk to people and ask questions. But at the end of the day, you are the person that can figure out your own life. But what's nice about a therapist is they're objective to your life, right? So it's like hard when you talk to a sister or a partner or a friend, you know, you may be even subconsciously sort of, you know, I'm thinking about breaking up with my partner, but I don't want to tell that to maybe my mom, because what if I don't break up with my partner and then they end up at Thanksgiving dinner together, right? So something like a therapist can help you identify those voices and really speak them into the world so we can look at them and evaluate them in a way that don't you don't necessarily have access in other parts of your life. With that said, I do realize that therapy is not for everybody. Not everybody has access to therapy. So, you know, if someone is just like, hey, I'm doing this by myself and I'm really trying to quiet my anxious voice, I'm trying to turn up my confidence. I always, people eye roll at this all the time, but I'm going to say it anyway mantras and affirmations, right? So we now know a lot about the human brain. And the more someone practices a thought, right, the more that thought becomes automatic. And the example that I use is imagine you're driving from your house to, I don't know, insert somewhere you go, work. 
you don't actually put a lot of thought into it, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're hopefully not on your phone, but you're listening to music or you're just like dazing out and then you just get there. And that's because your brain has practiced it so many times. It doesn't need to bring a lot of forethought to it, right? It doesn't need to put it into like the front of our brain. Well, unfortunately, that's really helpful when it's like, don't touch the stove or how do I get to work? It's very unhelpful when it's like, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I am unlovable, right? All of the negative self-talk that we have becomes automatic. So when we're trying to shift that from being an anxious, you know, nervous, self-deprecating thought to something that's more positive, right? Quieting the insecurities and, you know, making our confidence louder, it's, it's actively practicing new thoughts. And what we know now is that like there's neural pathways in our brain and this is like, you know, brain stuff. When, when we practice the thought, I'm not good enough, it actually becomes a super highway from like in our brain, right? There's an actually a neural pathway that's thick. And if we've never said to ourselves, like I'm lovable, that one's like a whisper in our brain, right? So just the act of repetition and practicing new thoughts actually starts to, you know, manifest them in a way. And that's, you know, again, from like a psychological point, we hear this, from a neurological point, we hear this, from like a spiritual point, we hear about man- manifestation, right? We're all kind of saying the same thing, right? Believe in yourself and it will shift. Our thoughts do shift our behaviors. I love that. I love that, Alison. And I can resonate 100% because it's so easy to look at examples in one's life when you start thinking about something and that's all you see in your life. And then when you start looking, like you said, to the negative elements and you realize, wait a second, I've done this all my life. Of course, it's going to be easy to continue doing it. So the tough part is to change that. And from a psychology point of view, from where, where you stand, how how much repetition does one need to be able to, to reprogram those neural pathways to actually make the change, uh, a long lasting change? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> and that's where people get stuck, right? So, you know, if we're just talking about general patterns, right, the absolute minimal of research has showed is we have to pattern something for 30 days before it even becomes a whisper of a habit, right? And so if we're talking about like changing our brain chemistry, really leaning into confidence, having a new perspective of the world, that's going to take longer. An example I give is like, okay, learning how to do a push-up is hard. So like, not an easy thing if you've never done a push-up, but if you've been doing a push-up for 30 years incorrectly in the wrong form and now suddenly you have to learn the new form over again it's actually going to be harder so it's not even like we're talking about someone who's very young right a child that's why i love doing child psychology that's not my specialty at all but it's it's like yeah let's get them when they're little and and not teach them to dislike themselves right like let's let's start at age six and just give them all the wisdom and self-confidence but most of us in our 20s 30s 40s 50s you know have missed that and we're now unlearning negative thoughts and relearning positive ones. So it really does take a lot of commitment. When I work with clients one-on-one, I ask them to commit to a minimum of 30 days of when they brush their teeth, just saying one nice thing about themselves, right? Like get in front of the mirror. I don't even care if you believe it. You don't have to believe it. That's not the exercise right now. One nice thing. And it, it can be like the cliche, like I am beautiful and I am lovable. If that speaks to you, do it. But if it doesn't speak to you, I'm doing the best I can. That one works just as well. It's just really starting to practice shifting, becoming aware of our thoughts and then shifting them. And I love your brother awareness part because it keeps showing up in every aspect of my life. In my professional life, I work as an organizational change manager as part of, well, a small part of my job. And awareness is a huge part of that too. You can't start doing anything until you're aware of the situation you're trying to change. 
Yes. And I love uh, the example you gave when you brush your teeth because it's a simple act and you can just commit to doing it, let's say, for 30 days. Like you said, you don't need to believe in it. Just do it and see the impact it has. Yeah. And it will magic. Like for me, for example, I, I did some of that, but I also added practicing gratitude and being grateful for things in my life. And that shifted my mentality a bit from someone that wasn't happy with certain things to now looking for things to be happy with. And I would imagine, and I'm curious to see your take as a psychologist, how much similarity is between those type of behaviors as well, right? Because it's all about talking or thinking positive things, which will result in more positive things showing up in your life. I just went to Bali in October, right? And I had never been to that side of the world. And the country is mostly Hindu, right? And I was not very familiar with the Hindu religion, but something that they did that I noticed in, in Hinduism, or at least in the way that is practiced in Bali, is every single morning they wake up and they pay gratitude their entire life. So each and every human, right, and within the culture that I was within, would wake up and they would leave offerings. And they would leave offerings to their kitchen for creating food, to the sun for shining, right, to the broom for cleaning the house. They would go out into their altars and they would put, um, you know, a tribute to their ancestors, right? Now, you don't have to connect to the spirituality of Hinduism, right? I didn't convert. I'm not asking anybody like, to convert to the religion. But that practice was mind-blowing to me. And the place I noticed that the absolute most is they do this as a family in the morning. And then the school children go to school. They do it at school. But then even at the hotel, one day I was waiting for, you know, a cab to come pick me up. And I noticed that basically that's what they do before they go to work, right? So they come in and they all meet as like a little meeting and they say, thank you to the customers. And as I was watching this tradition in their culture, I was thinking about all of the jobs I've had in my life, right? And I was particularly thinking about being a bartender. You know, we would often show up at nine o'clock at night. Our shifts were like 9 p.m. to 4 a.m., right? It's like an ungodly hour. And we would immediately come in and complain, right? Like, ah, this customer's here again. It's so sticky. I'm so tired. I didn't get a good night's sleep. And it's like, that does set the tone then for the shift in you have, right? So just watching the practice in this application of gratitude really like dug in just how influential it could be to our perspective of the world, right? If I instead came into my shift and I was like, wow, thank you to my coworkers. It's so nice that there's customers here at all. I'm so fortunate I have a job, right? Maybe my distress tolerance would have been different if someone, you know, was, you know, being extra asking for whatever they were asking from, right? It's like, it does sort of shift just our relationship to the world, right? And so it's like, you know, again, you don't have to do this from a spiritual point of view, but you can just do this in an everyday, like I'm waking up and, you know, just a little habit of being thankful for anything. And that can be something grand, like I'm happy for my family, and I'm happy for opportunities, but it can even just be something as small as I'm, I'm, I'm have gratitude that I get to eat an egg this morning. Right. And I have food and see, you know, when I tell this story to clients and I ask them to start to incorporate gratitude into sort of their own mental health healing, you know, what I, what I say to them is like, try and then really connect to your body. Right. I'm, I'm going to wake up and I'm, I'm thankful in my shower how good it feels to have hot water on my back, right? To just walk out and be squeaky clean. And then just check it. Did my stress level go down a little bit, right? Most of the time we're going to say, yeah, it did, right? Like it does feel a little less angsty, right? 
And, and that, I think then what you said, I a hundred percent agree with, like when we are our, our better, more authentic self, the world just becomes stronger, right? Now, if someone cuts me off in traffic, maybe I'm not as peed about it, right? I'm just like, all right, they're in a hurry. I'm not no big deal, right? Versus blaring on my horn, right? So it's just all of these little small interactions actually have quite a profound ripple effect on not only our own wellness, but just like the health of the world around us. So yeah, yeah gratitude is a beautiful thing. I couldn't agree more, to be honest with you. And I love the example you gave with Bali. I wasn't aware of uh, that practice that I haven't been to that part of the world yet. But that's beautiful because it's, you are absolutely right. You start with positivity because it's being positive about something you enjoy in life. And then the negative things that happen in life that always happen will be less impactful. And it, it reminded me of like the story you said with the brain, right? And that's why I made the tangent there because it's the same idea. You bring more positivity into your life, be that you speak more positive to yourself about yourself or be grateful or do an act of kindness for someone. These are all things, like you said, will have a ripple effect. But the funny thing for me, to be honest with you, is not even that they have a ripple effect on those around me, because honestly, I don't necessarily know how much of an impact it will have on you if I'm nice to you. Or if I say hello, or if I have a smile on my face, or if I buy your coffee, but I know how it makes me feel. And if it makes me feel better, wouldn't I want more of that for myself? So when I practice gratitude, it makes me feel better because it reminds me of beautiful things. When I talk nicely to myself, it makes me feel better. Yeah. When I do an act of kindness, it makes me feel better. So we can look at it from, let's say, call it selfish point of view, bring it back to us. Yeah. Does it make you feel better? Do more of it. Like when you talk badly about yourself. How does it make you feel? Why would you want to keep doing that? Yeah, exactly. And like, that's that awareness piece. I love to tell this story. And I'm just, the kid's like probably 16 now. And, and I'm one day going to find him and be like, by the way, I've told this story hundreds of times. But I was once with a client and he was probably like nine or 10, right? At the time. And he was in my office and he was like, Allison, I have to ask you a really big question. Sure. He was like, what's the meaning of life? I was like, my God, this is above my pay grade. I have no damn idea. You were asking the wrong person. So I did like the typical therapist thing. And I was like, I don't know. What do you think? Right. And here's his answer. He was like, find the things you, that make you smile and do more of them. Find the things that make you frown and try to stay away from them. And I was like, you know what? Single-handedly, that might be the most enlightened answer to what's the meaning of life that I've, I can't top that. <laughs> like, I got nothing to follow that. And I've, I've used that actually as like a parameter of my own life, right? Like, is this making me smile? How can I incorporate this more? Is this making me frown, anxious, depressed, ungrateful, you know, resentful? How can I move my life in a position that, you know, starts to reduce this, whatever this is? And I love that example. And <laughs> Oh my God, that's such a beautiful story. And it reminds us how as children, at least the way I see it, we have all the answers. We know what our purpose is or why we're here. But then we forget because society happens, schooling happens, whoever raises us, they want the best for us, but they teach us their ways, right? So we forget. And it's just a matter of, again, can we become aware of those things and see, can we make life very simple? Yeah. Do more of the stuff you like and less of the stuff you don't like? It sounds simple, but it's actually fairly doable for most of us. Yeah, it's scary. You know, so something that happened in COVID, I was a, became a virtual therapist as I am now. And, you know, people obviously had a lot of time on their hands, right? Like we weren't doing the things that we were used to doing. And so the most common question I would ask is like, okay, well, you have all this time. Like, what do you want to, how can we use this time so you're not depressed or anxious? And, you know, actually overwhelmingly people couldn't answer like, given that I have time, what do I want to do, right? And I love what you said, which is like, actually we have the answers, 
but just so much life has gotten in the way we've forgotten them. They're like, they're buried deeper. And, you know, I recently in the last like few years have gone alcohol free mostly. And I was working with a, a coach one day and she was like, all right, well, if you're not going to be drinking anymore, what, what can you do? We're, we're, we're making, we're, we don't have time for this anymore. What do we got time for? And I had no idea. Right. I was like, I don't know. And she was like, what did you like to do when you were a kid before life got in the way? What'd you do? Right. What made you smile? And I actually thought that that was like a very profound question because I realized no one had asked me that, including myself in decades. Right. I was like, all right. She's like, go back. You're seven. What are you doing? I was like, I love the beach. I love swimming and I love dancing. She's like, okay, do you swim anymore? And I was like, no, dance anymore. And I was like, no. So, you know, again, she was like, okay, how can we start to make time for this? Right. And then most of us don't have just like, okay, well now I'm going to go swimming every weekend or, but you know how I actually connected that to my life. I bought a pool and I use the word pool in quite quotation marks, right? It is a hellaciously ugly eyesore in my backyard. It's basically a giant bathtub, right? But I can swim, right? So it didn't actually take, you know, a lot of the times we get in our own way and we think whatever we want is going to be so involved that we get too scared to even do it, right? So when I got really flexible of the idea of how can I swim, right? And it's like, put this plastic tub in my backyard. Okay, it's water and I can move my body. Thumbs up, right? I actually got what I wanted, right? Am I going to become a dancer? No, I'm now, you know, gained a a significant amount of weight and I'm working with a very different body than I was when I was a dancer back then. But you know what? That does not mean that I cannot move my body, right? Becoming a dancer looks different than when I was 17 now that I'm 42. But sure, of course I can move this body. I joined a dance studio, right? I go there once a week. It's not my life anymore. But it's just finding the little things in our lives that, you know, and I'm really connecting to that like childhood innocence of what uniquely made you, you, what did you like and how can we make some space inside of our life to get that? Beautiful and inspiring. And again, I smile here because that's exactly what I did as well. About this time last year, a bit earlier, when I was really looking down and I said, okay, what's my purpose in life? What makes me happy? And you said earlier, and I said as well, we have the answers. We just forget that we can look back or we can truly do an inventory and say, well, that activity made me smile and I used to do it so much. Mm-hmm. Or that action made me smile or made others smile. So I want to do more of that. And once you sit and realize that and you do that exercise, I mean, it's first of all, it's fun to go back and think about it, I would imagine. And second, it gives you so much more power. It gives you the power takes it away from everything else that you put it in. But I wonder from your experience, how does trauma impact this? Because I would imagine people that have more severe trauma, and I know all of us have some form of trauma, may have a harder time looking back and finding those joyful times because there's so much negativity surrounding them. Yeah, you know, trauma, you know, when we're talking about like chronic or acute pervasive trauma, it's going to shift a lot of this healing dialogue, right? So, you know, usually when I'm working with someone who has had a traumatic background, the, the place where we have to start is rebuilding safety and trust in themselves, right? And a lot of the healing, I mean, none of us can really heal unless we feel safe, right? Because, you know, in order to heal, in order to ask big questions, we have to be vulnerable. And if we don't feel safe, we're not going to be vulnerable. So, you know, there's a lot of work that kind of has to set someone up first before we can get into the more explorative stuff. And that's a lot of like, looking at patterns that we no longer need, right? If we have a trauma history and maybe that's just like fight or flight, 
not trusting other people, right? Like there's a lot of things. Our bodies are really adaptive. Our brains are really adaptive. When we're in a constant state of danger, we do really amazing things to protect ourselves. And when the danger is over, a lot of the times it takes a long process for us to unlearn and really connect to the safety rather than the fear. That's a long process, right? It still can be done, right? I This is my specialty. I've seen unbelievable people come out of unbelievable things, but asking like, Hey, let's go back to your childhood and like, think of the things that made you happy. That's a bit of a privileged question, right? There is an inherent assumption there that there were things that made someone happy. And if someone's like, you know, endured an abusive childhood, for instance, they may not have the answer to that, right? That doesn't mean that they can't ask it now. It's like, okay, let's honor that you experienced something that didn't allow you to ask that question. That was too unsafe. It was impossible for you. But right now let's reconnect to the safety and let's start, let's start to think like you were a kid, right? Were there things maybe you noticed that you wanted, but you didn't get, right? Like there's still the child in you that we can connect to. It just kind of comes from a more gentle one. And I usually like, you know, just put it in in an envelope of self-love and self-compassion and understanding. That's beautiful. And I know we talk a lot about self-love, so maybe we can shift to that. Sure. And I know most of us, if not all of us, can do more on that front, on the self-love. And I know we touched on that already a bit with talking nicer to ourselves and getting to that habit. But how do you see self-love from a, let's say, a therapist point of view versus just like you as a human being, the same as all of us? Is there like a difference between that? I think it is. You know, I think when we talk about self-love, it it's very like self-love and self-care are huge buzzwords, right? Like you, you can just go on Instagram. You're going to see like self-love, but real self-love, real self-care. And I, I, I mean, they're not interchangeable, but I think they're very interconnected. The Venn diagram of self-love and self-care is really huge. Something I say to my clients is like self-care isn't bath bombs. It's, it's having boundaries, right? It's like, Self-love is not only knowing ourselves, but being able to assert ourselves, being able to ask for what we need, giving ourselves permission to just have need, right? I see so many clients, you know, especially anyone who's kind of had a lifestyle where they had to take care of people, right? Maybe like a mom, you know, their needs kind of get thrown out the window. And then at some point they forget that their needs are even there. Right. And like self-love is reconnecting to those. So I think, you know, to the question like, okay, what's the layman's perspective of self-love versus mine? Self-love for me, I would say self-love takes work. And I don't know that that's always so obvious. Right. It's like, wait, well, what do you mean I have to have boundaries or say no or not overwork myself? These things that we just kind of, you know, acquire over the course of our lives, these, these ways in which we operate gets to sort of get renegotiated. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people. Self-love's tough and it, it feels like it shouldn't be, right? Yeah. That's that's a beautiful answer. Thank you for that, Alison. Let's talk about boundaries because it's something I've struggled with most of my life, setting boundaries with my professional life or within my professional life, my personal life and anything in between. How does one even begin that work? Because of course I would imagine it starts with awareness again, being aware you haven't set the proper boundaries. Now, how would you define that? And where, where would you start, would you say? Great question. I'm going to go with where would you start, right? So again, back to that awareness, right? Noting how we feel about something gives us much more insight and clues into where we might need boundaries, right? So as an example, right, if I'm going into work and I'm starting to feel burnt out, how might I notice that? Well, maybe I'm yelling at my kids more often, right? Maybe I'm not attending to my 
adequate daily living. I, I'm not taking showers as much. I've skipped meals. I'm my sleep hygiene is crap because I'm at the office all of the time. Right. And if you're going to like check into your emotion around that, it probably at least is frustration, possibly leveled up to anger. Maybe we're at full blown resentment, right? If we're feeling those kind of emotions, those that those are good like check engine light moments right maybe i need to renegotiate something and to me like the way i define boundary is a little bit like using the word renegotiation right like okay well i'm i need i need to have a conversation here about how this isn't working for me at work right and so you know insight and then renegotiate what it looks like and the same thing with like a partnership, right? If every time i'm going to my my kitchen and i'm noticing the dishes in the sink and i'm starting to feel really angry about it, right? That's a good, good indication that it's not working for me. And if it's not working for me, that's where boundaries come in, right? Like I need to now have a conversation about how this isn't working for me. And ultimately it's kind of what a boundary is, right? The, the proclamation of this isn't working for me anymore. I need to shift to this. Yeah. Right. Cause I mean, that's a really good explanation and it puts things in perspective even more because the way I heard it in the past as well, and the way I I look at it as sometimes a boundary is almost like putting a wall between you and something you don't want. Yeah. But this is even taking a step further. And because if you put a wall, I mean that the problem that you're trying to deal with is still going to be there. It's like you're hiding behind the wall, but it's more about addressing it in a way that's constructive and can get you away from having to interact with that or reducing that problem that's behind the wall, so to speak. So I really like that approach. Because that way, then you can tackle anything. And what I would imagine the example with the dishes, to me, what I've seen in my life, because there was something that came up a lot, maybe it's a matter of choice too. Like, do I want to choose to allow that to bother me? And if it, if it bothers me, unless say my partner or roommate doesn't deal with that, well, then I have a choice. I can go and do them because it's something that bothers me. Or like you said, you can have the conversation and see if you, if you want to make a big deal out of it or if they can respect your boundaries, so to speak, and deal with it. Yeah. But I wonder what your take is on having that conversation with yourself first and then with other people or having both of them. Because it's almost like I, I would see it as me making a choice on how I want to proceed further. And it could be either one or both. Yeah, you know, and, and maybe situational because I think, you know, I think the relationship in which the person, you know, you have with the yeah. person probably matters. And I don't mean that as a, like, are they your friend or your partner or your roommate, but just like, is this person particularly open-minded to hearing these types of conversations might change, you know, how much work you have to do first. Something I do with clients is, uh, you know, if we're talking about, you know, I'm going to have a difficult conversation, whether it's over dishes or something, you know, much higher. I'm like, okay, write it out first, all the things I'm feeling and just go like rogue, right? No edit, just write every word that comes to your mind as angry as you want it to be. And then we're going to bring it back into session and we're going to turn it from something that's just internal to something that someone can hear. Right. Because our our effective communication is not just what we have to say, but it's can this person hear it and we want the person to hear it. Right. Like we want that combo. And I love what you said. And, and I have sort of a similar kind of way, like concept conceptualization of it where I would say to, to clients like, OK, like the dishes are making me angry. Right. So I'm like holding a ball now. Right. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to hand this to you. The dishes are making me angry. I want you to do your dishes. Now you have the ball and you can look at it and be like, OK, got it. I'm going to do the dishes now. Or you can be like, yeah, I don't care. That ball back, right? And so it's like, just because we're going to assert in a boundary doesn't mean that the person is going to be receptive to the boundary. So that's why we have to kind of have a little bit of a back and forth. But where our internal insight matters is like, what is our what is our non-negotiable, right? I mean, you get the ball back and you're like, you know what? Am I being, is this something I could be more flexible on? Maybe I can just do the dishes, right? 
And it's okay if that answer is yes. And it's okay if your personal answer is like, no, this is just too much for me. So it is sort of this constant, that's why I always use the word negotiation, right? Renegotiation of like, where can I compromise? Where's my, I'm drawing the line. And then the other thing that we're talking about boundaries and this kind of work that matters a lot is usually it's not really about the dishes, right? It's like most of us, if we're looking at the dishes and we're like, I can't believe they didn't do it again. It's I'm not feeling seen or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I've said things that bother me and it's gone unnoticed, right? So that's the other part that kind of matters to all of this is like, what's the deeper pattern that's happening? Because we all have patterns and we all have triggers, right? I used to have a couples therapist that I would go into with my partner and we would be like, okay, we got into this fight. And he'd be like, I don't care about the details. What's the feeling, right? And he would never ever allow us to be like, but it was the dishes. He's like, I don't care, I don't care. And that was actually nominally frustrating to me. I've thought about this man like hundreds of times in the last 10 years. And I actually think it was one of the most valuable advice I got, right? Like it's never about the dirty socks on the floor, right? It's about you're feeling something deeper. And, you know, a lot of the time that trigger is even more than just the the partner, right? It's like, maybe this is like, I didn't feel seen by my parents either. So, you know, when we're talking about self-love, self-care, boundaries, right? It's like, this is all deep work, right? It's all inter, there's this big interweb in there. It's, it's hard. It's effortful, right? And I, you know, when I kind of speak on these platforms, this is some of the message that I say, like, and it's okay. So if you're finding it hard, if you're finding it tiring, if you're finding yourself a little lost, if you don't have a lot of skills around this, like, none of us do, right? We're all trying to figure this out and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're failing at it. It just means this is hard work. It is. Yeah. Hard work that's very rewarding in the end as, as you put in the time. And I, I love that you mentioned and the example of your therapist as well there because to me, it goes back to the idea of that the dishes, I say the socks on the floor are just the symptom, right? So if you try to treat the symptom down the route, the, the cause behind all that is still going to stay there. And what you're talking about is like, how can you go deeper and find the cause of all those issues that come up, the resentment, the disappointment, whatever comes up in that moment. And that's, that's tough because a lot of us, like you said, don't have the tools. And that's some work I've started doing myself with my inner child and looking inwards and find it. And it's not easy. And it's not obvious either. No. That's the hard part. Yeah. That's a great point. It's very not obvious, right? Because if it was obvious, we'd all just be like, oh yeah, that's my abandonment mood. No big deal, Right. It's scary to look at, right? It's just, it is when we're doing, you know, inner child work, you know, people call it all different things, inner child work, shadow work, parts work, but they all kind of speak to, I'm looking at the parts of myself that are unhealed and trying to figure out when that started, why that started. And that insight can power myself to figure out what do I need? And then when I figure out what do I need, I can figure out how to get it and ask for it. And then once I ask for it, I can then move on, right? Like, that is a journey, right? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. But it is, it is rewarding because I, I can only give myself an, as an example. As I'm going through this and I'm healing certain parts of myself and allowing those emotions to come up, which is something as a man I haven't really allowed much in, in my past. It almost feels like a weight is lifted off your shoulders, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively, and you become lighter and lighter. And of course, there's always more layers you can unpack and you can go deeper. And... For me, it also with that awareness that you talked about so much already, right? So like once you have that awareness, begin the work. And there's so many tools you can do that. But I'm curious from your 
point of view? Would uh, a therapist like yourself, for example, be one of those tools that someone can use to really dig deep into the shadow work, the inner child work, or whatever they call it? All the studies about therapy have pretty much said that actually it's the relationship between the therapist and the client that's the most, it doesn't really matter what your school of thought is, right? If someone feels like you are a safe person to do this work with, that's, that's going to be the biggest catalyst for if the work gets done. And, you know, with trauma clients, it takes a lot longer, right? With, with people to do any type of this work, it takes a long time. With trauma, it takes a lot longer. But that's where, you know, like that cliche, like trust the process. It's like, unfortunately, that's actually true. These, we, we go as fast as we're ready to go, right? There's no like, okay, we're, this is our trauma dumping session and we're all going to sit and you're going to tell me all your stuff. And the next session, we're going to do inner child work. And then, you know, six sessions down the line, you're healed. Godspeed. It's like, you know, to, to bring awareness to this stuff is painful. You know, and I like what you said. I, I just recently went to, I went on vacation and I got a massage and it was one of the most painful massages I've ever gotten to the point where I was like on the table thinking maybe I should tell her this is too painful, right? Like I just, I actually am like gritting my teeth. But when I left, I was like, oh my God, butter, right? Like this is the best I've ever felt. And I actually posted this to social media, but I had this, again, little light bulb that went off. That's like, that's kind of what healing is. It's like, you're on the table and someone is just doing things with you. Or even if, you know, that you're trying, you, people can be on their healing journey without, a, you know, an official clinician, but it's like, this is painful stuff. Ultimately, it's going to feel really good. It's going to feel light. It's going to feel enlightened. But like in the, in the trenches, right. It's like, and especially like, you know, talking about how, you know, you're a man and haven't really had a lot of, you know, teachings around how to name emotions, right. Most of us don't even have skills around this at all, especially if you've been, you know, certainly with men, um, I love to counsel men, right. When I ask them like, what are you feeling? They can usually name happy, angry, sad, right. And it's like, okay, Let's talk about anger, right? Like what a scale of anger that is. That's from like disappointment slash frustration to full on lividness. Where are you at? Right? So there's a lot of not only is this going to be painful and hard, but just the learning that's inside of it, all of it is really difficult as well. And the, we have to keep the eye on the prize, which is I promise at the end of this story, right? There's going to be sunshine and rainbows. It's just like, we kind of got to get through the clouds first. And that's where, you know, people that are willing to hang on through that tunnel, it's like, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but I understand why people get frustrated or stop or why it's too scary to keep going, you know? And I've been there many times myself in my life, right? Until I really put uh, my eyes on the price, so to speak, like me being a better version of myself, happier, yeah. more joyful a better person to be around, someone that can inspire others. That's really when it all clicked. I'm like, okay, so then I do the work because this is what I want. And it's not that I'm fixed in, in my expectation around what I want, but I have a more clear picture and vision in mind. And I know you touched on this earlier, and I, I wanted to go back to it. I just remember this idea that even your expectations around what you wanted in life were very flexible. Because I, I realized in my life, when my expectations were very rigid, I would miss out on opportunities. I would miss out on many things, but also allow for a lot of negative feelings to come in because, of course, life will throw things your way and you're going to get derailed. So if your expectation is very fixed as to whatever the outcome you want will have to be, then it may be difficult for you to be happy even if you do reach a version of the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and two important things there. You know, one is like life is going to throw you curveballs you weren't expecting. 
right? So I always say like our distress lies between what we, our expectations and what we get, right? Like we have to stay flexible. And the example I always use is, hey, we all just went through a global pandemic, right? I was a COVID bride. I was getting married in my, when I would turn 40, 30, 40, 39, whatever it was. And I was like, I've waited this long and it's going to be my wedding. And then it was like, there's a global pandemic. And guess what? That looked way different. We had to cancel it a few times in the end. And so imagine how heartbreaking that could have been if I had had a really rigid, like, but this is my wedding or else, right? Instead, I focused on like, hey, look, I'm so lucky that I have all these people who have survived this pandemic, right? People are videoing in, people are just sending me their good wishes from afar and really shifting an expectation, right? And so, you know, that's like a, I think we can all envision what a wedding is supposed to look like and and have a concept for what it doesn't. But like that applies for all of our lives, right? Our jobs are going to look different than we thought they were, right? Our homes are going to look different. I had a therapist, my therapist once told me like, never put a goal, stop using the word goal and substitute it with the word experience, right? So like right now I'm writing a book, right? And he's like, okay, well, if we focus on the book needs to be published and this many copies need to be sold by 2026, if that doesn't happen, you're going to feel like a disappointment, right? You're going to feel like you failed. What if we're just like, I'm going to experience what it's like to be a writer in this world, right? That doesn't really matter. Then the control is really internal. As long as I'm putting a pen to a paper, I've I've hit a check mark, right? And so, you know, I think what I say to clients pretty much obsessively is like, they call it like one of my Allisonisms, is as long as we are flexible, creative, and patient. Those are my big three. You can get anything you want. You cannot say, I want to become a millionaire and then tomorrow become a millionaire. I can't just say, I'm going to marry Ryan Gosling tomorrow and then thus he's my husband, right? Like life does not work that way. But if you're looking for the need, right? I want a home or I want love, or I want to feel passion in my work. Those things we can always connect to with enough, again, flexibility, creativity, yeah. and patience, right? Absolutely. I love that. For me, it's the idea of intention versus expectation. And I like the idea of a goal as well and the vision too. Like in the example with a book, very similar to my on this podcast, at the beginning I was like, oh, I want to have this many viewers over this much time. But then I realized the value brings me from having these conversations, a conversation with you right now, I'm learning so much. It's challenging some of my own, own beliefs and it's giving me access to so much information. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm doing this for me, first of all. And if it gets to be seen by others, which it will, or listened to by others, there's just a jerry on top of the cake. So I'd imagine we're writing a book is the same thing because I would imagine when you put a pen to the paper, you're getting so much out yourself. It's likely a form of therapy. I've heard that saying many times. And you're learning a lot Absolutely. and you're allowing your creativity to come through. And then the rest is just a bonus and it will happen if you make it through when you, you publish your book and you do all those things, right? And people can't replace it with anything, right? You don't have to have a podcast to write a book. It could be any of your passions or anything that makes you happy in the end. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. I want to I wanna take it in a different direction for a second. When you quit your first big job and you had to go back to waitressing and then you got thrown the curveball to now have to go back to school to get this and you're at your lowest, imagine your current self could time travel to that point in time and coach younger Allison to have a bit of an easier time in that moment to navigate the lowest of lows. What would be some of the pieces of advice you would give yourself? You know, it would be a nice, simple little mantra and it's just, it's going to work out, right? Like, so something that, well, I, I have three mantras that I say to myself obsessively. So one is it's just going to work out. Two is my anxiety lies. And three, you can do tough things. I think I had to go through the dark tunnel to, to have those light bulbs, 
But if I could go back and like sit down with like 28 year old me, those are the things I would say. Like this is going to work out, right? And this is going to work out is really vague. It doesn't mean you're going to get the job you want or, you know, the relationship's going to work out. It's just like, this is going to work out. We're keeping it vague. You'll be fine. Like you're going to be fine at the end of whatever the the journey might be. Exactly. Right. Beautiful. I like that. Yeah. So, and just that thought challenging. It is very much so. And I I like that because anyone listening to this can apply that. And it's a similar mantra to what I have. But I'm really curious on the second one you mentioned there, my anxiety life. Can you expand on it a bit? Because that's powerful too. That's deep. Yeah. You know, so part of the reason that I, I think somewhere along the line, I became a therapist. I had hellacious anxiety when I was young. And, you know, I grew up in the, like, the 90s, 80s baby, but I had high school in the 90s. And like anxiety wasn't a thing. I actually ended up in the ER one day. I had such a bad panic attack. I got rushed to the emergency room. And they were like, you had a panic attack. And it was like news to me. I was very embarrassed by it. And then nothing else happened, right? Like no one got me a therapist. I didn't try medication. So I went really like undiagnosed, unmanaged anxiety really until I was in in grad school when I was like afforded through my school and program a therapist. And something that I have, and so like it's part of the reason my specialty is anxiety. I connect to this so well. I know what that's like. It's, it's a horrible feeling to be anxious, right? And certainly suffer some, from something like panic disorder. But my anxiety is first of all, very ruminative, right? And that just means like cyclical, like it's constantly telling me the same thing over and over. And the things that it's telling me are never nice, right? It's like something will happen and I'll, you know, I'll be at a party and I'll say something and I'll go home and I'll be like, oh, I said that thing and I sounded stupid. I sounded stupid. I sounded so stupid. And I will obsess about it. It becomes really obsessive quickly. And so now what I've realized is if I think about how much my anxiety has told me and predicted it's almost exponentially inaccurate, right? I'm like, I've said this stupid thing, everyone in the room noticed, and now they're all judging me, right? And now I'm not a good person and I'm not worthy of friends. Like that escalated quite quickly. And the truth is like, no one even noticed, right? Everybody was in their own their own life, their own thing. And I said this thing, it fell away. Maybe someone for a moment was like, that was a silly comment. And then no long-term effect. I will constantly say things like to myself, you know, this isn't going to work out. I'm not going to make that goal. And yet I do. Right. So I've just really spent a lot of time challenging my anxiety and what it's actually telling me. And it's, it's just, it's, it's pervasively wrong. Right. So I can safely say now that it is a liar, right? Like it constantly tells me things that are inaccurate all the time, right? So now with that, I almost like personify it and like imagine it like tapping me on the shoulder and being like, I just just taught a class recently and I was having all this anxiety beforehand. I was like, the class is going to be terrible. No one's going to get anything of it. And it's like tap, tap, tap. And it's like you again, you terrible liar, you know? And in the end, the class was beautiful. It was a beautiful class. We shared a wonderful time. I got a lot of positive feedback. So you know, that's just, I just have, but I have to, even now, even as enlightened as I feel like I can, I'm more enlightened than I was back then when I was suffering from horrible panic attack. I promote this for a living. I still need to practice that, right? You asked earlier, how long do you need to repeat these things for? I'm probably repeating my anxiety lies to me until my last waking breath because I need a constant, you know, it, it's a very, it's a very pervasive energy. It, it doesn't want to be kicked away by anxiety. So I have to constantly be kicking it away. It's almost like reminding yourself and going back to that positive. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious if you can tell us a bit more about the Mindful Mental Health organization that you've started and the work you do today where where people can find you. Yeah, so I have a practice. It's actually, I'm, I'm... 
proud to say it's been full for a long time. So I'm not currently accepting clients. But what I have tried to do in a similar way as you, I believe the more we all share our stories, the more normalized this all becomes. And then we don't feel so alone. When I was experiencing all of these epiphanies, all of this anxiety, it felt really, really isolating. I felt like I was the only person on earth who was having all these thoughts and these feelings. I don't believe that now, right? So I surround myself with other people who are sharing their stories of how they overcame things. And so, you know, I actually am starting a podcast in a few months, but that's to be determined later. But I have a, a social media presence and I what I and a, a newsletter and what I it's all, it's all free. Basically, I realize people can't necessarily access mental health treatment. Obviously, Instagram, social media, these things are not replacements for therapy. But because I have been, you know, I have limited access to people who can sit with me one on one, I share a lot of mental health content, how to overcome anxiety, I try to give it practical tools, right? Not like, yes, I have these conversations, but like, hey, here's an actual grounding mechanism. Here's what you can try at home. And that is pretty much all of my handles are a note from your therapist. So my website is a note from your therapist.com. I, I try to monthly put up new resources that are totally free. I just wrote one that was a visualization on connecting to your higher self that I'm hoping to post tomorrow. So that's a great way to connect. And I try to build community around there because I do think the stronger our community is, the better, the better we all do. Yes, absolutely. Love that message. Thank you, Alison. So before I let you go, this yeah. has been such a beautiful conversation. But is there anything else you'd like to add? Something that we haven't talked about that may be very relevant right now? I think we covered quite a lot. You know, the, the thing I always just like to kind of, if you've heard nothing else from me, just keep going, right? Like that's what I, I, I tell people, you know, we often hyper-focused on this moment. And this moment is one bleep in our entire, you know, timeline. I really love the Buddhist, there's a Buddhist philosophy called the idea of impermanence. Nothing stays the same. So if you're having a great time in your life and you're feeling like you're nailing it, keep going. But especially if you don't feel like you're nailing it, if you're having a struggle, this too shall pass, right? And I do I do just like to just hyper-focus on that message as well. I love that message. And that's something I, I pass on as well. And that goes for both good and bad things. So enjoy the good things as much as you can and keep going and the bad things know that they will pass through and good things will come again. I love the message, Alison. Well, thank you again for taking time to chat with us. It's been a pleasure to the audience. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for joining us on this exploration of personal transformation. Your presence and engagement are at the heart of what we do. And I sincerely appreciate you, your time and thirst for knowledge, inspiration and empowerment. Please consider showing your support by hitting like, subscribe, leaving a comment or writing a review. Your engagement not only fuels our mission, but also helps others discover these insights. For more daily guidance on personal transformation across the mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical realms, be sure to visit our website at unleashthyself.com. You can also find us on Instagram at unleashthyselftoday, TikTok and YouTube at unleashthyself, and there we post daily content designed to inspire and empower you on your journey. If you have any specific thoughts, questions, or feedback, I truly value your input. Or if you'd like to have a conversation with me, or work with me, please feel free to email me directly at constantine at unleashthyself.com. I would love to hear from you. Together, we're building a community united in authenticity and purpose. Once again, thank you for being a part of this movement. Until next time, 
continue to embrace your true self and live a life on purpose, with purpose. See you in the next episode.